Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. So... In the last episode, um, my family and I were in the hospital, and I initially had intended to um, as to do this next episode in two parts, and I was struggling a lot to get all of it packed in, um, so I decided just to break this episode out onto its own. Um, and give it its own life, and then take you through um, the two-part episode, which dives a little more deeply into PTSD and what that showed up like. So in this episode, you'll hear from my mom again, um, you'll hear from my friend Andrew again, and you'll hear from my friend Meg for the first time, um, and she'll play a bigger role in the second half of this series. Um, but in this episode, I thought it was important to give it its own space because it's really a little bit more dedicated to kind of the, the peeling back of the onion of the, the aftershock of the high in the hospital. Um, and just still me clinging to that hope for things to get back to normal um and in this episode you'll really see how that is starting to crumble um so thank you and take care as always um and stay tuned so As my family and I were deciding what to do, um, as we were leaving the hospital, we, I was pretty sure that I could go back and stay at my apartment. Um, you know, I had my dog and I knew that there was no way that she could stay, um, in a hotel with, with my parents and I, um, and I, I think my mom, you'll hear from in a minute, but I just kept saying that I could go back to my old apartment. And um, while we were still in the hospital, uh, the guy who was there who I had dated but was no longer dating, um, he had like a house in like Baldwin Hills, Culver City area, and he offered for us... um, to come stay there while we were looking 
for an Airbnb or someplace where we could all stay. And my ex came with us and helped bring all the flowers over and um, we all had drinks together that night and I think I was still in my bubble of everything's great and everything's going to be fine and we're all getting along. Um, and while we were there, I, I, I didn't think that I, and pretty naively, I didn't think that it was that big of a problem. Um, and, but in retrospect, I can see that it was and why it was. Um, but we were there for a few days and then, um, in this next clip, you'll hear from my mom, we did try uh, to go stay at my old apartment. There were the biggest thing at first, it's kind of a strange thing to say, but it seemed like you wanted to go back to your old life so bad, um, to your old apartment. And to, to Dave and I, we were like, why would you want to go back there? It doesn't make any sense. This is the this place is, that it happened, right? That's the place that it happened. Why would you, how could you ever sleep there again? Um, so this is just an example of sort of irrational um, thinking on our, you know, what we thought was irrational. Um, so then we, we you were just, we were like, what's your plan after we go? We, we were out there for a month, but the first What's, what's your plan when we get discharged from the hospital? Where are we going to go? That kind of thing. I didn't, I wanted you to come home, but you refused. Um, that would have been nice if you could have come home, I thought. But you didn't want to do that. We went and stayed at your apartment one night just to see if that was a possibility. And we slept over there too. Um, and you couldn't sleep all night. It was a test. You couldn't sleep all night. It was a test and it, it sort of proved that this wasn't a safe place to stay for you. But then you kept saying, (laughs) you kept like going back to it and going back to it and going back to it. Even not that it was, not that you were going to stay there, but that you wished you could, you know? Um, you also, that day we were in the apartment, that day we went back there to stay overnight was the first time I saw something wrong. Um, you were stuttering. Stuttering? Stuttering. And I don't even know if you knew that you did that. I don't know if I ever told you that, but you were stuttering when you were talking like, and then you started with, uh, um jerking I remember that night in my old apartment with my family um, my mom and her husband and my ex-boyfriend all stayed with me 
in the old place and it felt really different. Um, my stepdad and my ex and another friend had gone and cleaned up all of the blood, um, which was another thing I learned that the police don't do that for you. And I guess, you know, if you've seen Sunshine Cleaning, uh, you know that you you have to clean that up yourself. So they had thrown out all the curtains um, and cleaned everything up and mopped up all the blood and a lot of things were taken uh, into evidence. So it and had finger fingerprint dust on them, which is black. So it you know like all of the fingerprints were illuminated in like a charcoal black and so it, it felt weird inside it felt strange inside and then the hotel had put up these really bright fog lights for huge commercial fog lights outside of my bay windows in my living room that looked out over the yard so there were no curtains and there were these really bright lights that were shining outside and the intention I'm sure was to illuminate that area to you know de-incentivize anyone from hanging out back there or you know thinking that was a good place to camp out which would sometimes happen because it was so sheltered and and dark down there at night but being inside the apartment it just cast this like sickening yellowish green glow over everything and I kept thinking it looked like the light I saw a tornado once when I was driving from Chicago back where I went to art school back to to Wisconsin and that light and people from the Midwest probably know that that light that I'm talking about that like yellowish green color when there's about to be a tornado um, it felt like that and I just kept I laid in bed and everyone else had fallen asleep and we even rearranged my room to try to make it feel different in there in my bedroom but I just kept all night I kept staring in the direction of the door and thinking those lights are attracting everyone to this place the they're illuminating that there are four vulnerable people inside and my arm is in a cast and I'm tired. I'm tired like down to my bones and everyone is asleep and how am I going to protect them when someone breaks in? So I just went through a million scenarios where I protected my mom and my stepdad before they woke up and you know and then my stepdad jumps in and he's six foot eight so he's very large man and my ex-boyfriend was also a very tall large man and I but in my in my mind in my imagination I was the one who was vigilant enough to be awake when it all happened 
inevitably that someone came in and tried to hurt us and then they would come in and I imagined they would rip off that person's arms and that's you know obviously a fantasy um but all to say that morning I I told my family that all night I had had this you know reoccurring thought and obsession with staring at the door and imagining how I could protect my family when I was so tired and so unable to and that was last night that I spent in that apartment I wanted to go back to that apartment in Santa Monica so badly um partly because I didn't really have anywhere else to go um, other than going home, like my mom said, to Wisconsin. Um, but also, I never chose to leave that apartment. I went to bed and I woke up and my life was different without any agency in that decision. You know, I went to bed one night watching Mad Men on a Thursday, and the next morning, my entire life was changed. And the fixation that I had on going back and continued to have for a long time, which I'll talk about um, later in this episode and in the next episode, had a lot to do with that lack of choice in deciding to leave any of that behind and those decisions being really out of my control. So we moved into this Airbnb um, that I talked about and we got settled in and my parents were still here and life was still feeling pretty good and manageable. And that first week out of the hospital, I was still on a ton of pain medication and um, medication that really relaxes you and makes you feel great. Um, So that first week out of the hospital, everything still felt really manageable, though I was starting to creep in that real decisions needed to be made about what the future was going to hold for me Um, and looking for an apartment, looking for a therapist, looking for continued treatment, uh, looking for physical therapists, um, tracking all of the doctor's appointments, all of those things started to become a lot more present um, and top of mind to me um, and to my family. And I remember you guys coming over and spending time at that house a lot with me and my parents. Mm-hmm. 
And it was kind of a continuation of the hospital, right? A little bit. In less terms of people. like, there was less people, or was less of a free for all of people, I guess, and that in that it was like a bit more structured in terms of who was showing up when. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was a little bit different because it was. That's when I mean for me it was becoming less about the um, the immediate need stuff and getting more towards the like, okay, now that the dust is settling, the people who are in the hospital aren't going to be around as much anymore. Like those, like the, those kinds of things are going to fade and what's, what has she got that's constant? What's going to be there for her? Um, that's where my, that's, I guess, where my attention started to, to go. But even knowing that, which I did know that at that time, I really felt like I could not focus on that. I, I was so afraid of taking steps in that direction into the future because it, I think, felt like an acceptance that I couldn't go back to my old life, which I wasn't ready to accept yet. So I know my mom really struggled with with getting me to make decisions and getting me to pay attention to the things that I needed to pay attention to. No, no, no. <laughs> Focused. <laughs> right. And I knew that when you guys left, I would have to make these hard, scary decisions, you know? Mm-hmm. So part of that shift was going from the hospital, which was a constant flurry of people. Um, there were always people in the room talking, people I hadn't seen in a long time, people reaching out, so much attention, um, so much, you know, support and care and love, just the most, the maximum of what you can receive. And I think, you know, weaning off of that would is just hard because it's, you know, for so, at least for someone like me, I loved all of the attention. That <laughs> was like a dream come true, um, having all of that attention and love from everyone that I'd ever met. And the hospital was the first click down from that back into reality. And part of that was that uh, people started to fall away and I was you know I was in this new reality 24 hours a day and I couldn't escape it um but I had you know friends that continued to really be a part of helping me get through this and then some friends that tapped out and said this is too much, this is too overwhelming. Um, 
So people, and you know, some people just had to go back to their jobs and their lives. So the man who did this to me was in custody at this point, and we had a name, and we had seen a photo, and he was no one that I'd ever seen before, and a name that I didn't know other than that night. Um, but the police didn't have yet information about how or why he targeted me that night. And it was around this time that those questions really started to pop into my mind and haunt me a little bit. I remember laying in bed in the Airbnb and the police had told me to be careful about um, being too visible or letting too many people know where I was. Um, when I would go back to my apartment to pick anything up or a family went back to the apartment to pick anything up, sometimes the news would be there. Um, and I think, you know, posting on social media was out of the question, but they told me to be careful because they said he, the man who did this, um, he could have friends outside of jail um, that could come and threaten me or hurt me um, or kill me. And I remember laying in bed and sometimes I'd just stare at the windows in the bedroom that I was staying in and I thought I heard footsteps or I thought I heard someone trying to get in the window and I wasn't, I, I don't think I even told anyone that at the time because it only happened a few times. Um, I wasn't, I think there's this mis misconception about PTSD that it's that you can't sleep and you have nightmares because even therapists, everyone I talk to about PTSD asks how I sleep. And on the whole, I have, I sleep great. And I, I have slept great um, since it happened outside of a few pocket experiences. But, you know, there were a few nights that I was scared and I, I thought I heard someone outside because I had this fear that there was a chance that, that someone else could be coming to get me. By this time, I was about a week out of the hospital, and I was, you know, a day away from being out of the medications that I had been on uh, throughout my stay in the hospital and then after the hospital. So my arm was still in a big full-length cast, which, which you can see. Um, I'll be sharing photos on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast. Uh, my arm was still in a big cast. I couldn't use my whole left arm. My face was bruised. Um, I had cuts, you know, cuts all over my arms and my neck and my face. And... I still had not felt, including that night, a shred of physical 
pain, really, um, because I had been on so many medications. And about a week out of the hospital, I started to, all the, you know, all of the prescriptions, I it felt like in one day or in the span of one or two days ran out. And all of a sudden, the response was take uh, Tylenol and ibuprofen for the pain. And going from the amount of medication that I was on, so like so much medication, and I, in, in a second I'll take you through all of the medications that I was on because I think it's important um, to down low, you know, down that low to Tylenol, it was like this crash, and I'm sure an emotional crash and a physical crash that I had never experienced before the, the onslaught of all of that physical pain. And I think heightened by how quickly I went from being so medicated to not medicated at all. So really quickly, I want to take you through the medications that I was on in the hospital and the week out of the hospital. And I, I do want to share that because I think there was a pivotal moment that I want to highlight and talk about um, that has to do with the amount of medication um, that I was on at the time. Um, so in the hospital, I was on a Dilaudid drip, and Dilaudid is an opioid pain medication, and it's two to eight times more potent than morphine. So I had a, a little clicker, a little button that I could push to hit myself with more Dilaudid um, while I was in the hospital. That was intravenous. Um, I was also on Clonopin, which is a, a benzodiazepine. Um, it is treat it treats epilepsy. It's also used to treat panic disorders, um, and I was taking it as a, a like a an anti anxiety drug. Um, I was also on gabapentin, and these are all from my my charts. Um, from my time spent in the hospital, but it, it didn't include the dosages. Um, so I'm, I'm just giving a high level overview of all of the medications I was on, but I, I'm not sure about the dosage. So just to say that, um, I was on gabapentin, um, which is an anticonvulsant that also treats seizures, um, which clonopin does in addition to being an anti-anxiety medication. Um, gabapentin, relieves the pain of PHN by changing the way body senses pain. So the way it was explained to me was that gabapentin was used as a nerve dulling medication that it treated specifically, in my case, um, the intention was to treat nerve pain. Um, I was also on methocarbamol, which is a muscle relaxer. It's a central nervous system depressant. Um, and muscle relaxant used to treat muscle spasms, tension, and pain. So I had a, I had and still have a, a tick, but my tick 
was happening a lot um, in the hospital and I was twitching and um, convulsing a little bit. So I, I'm guessing that's why this was prescribed, um, methylcarbamol. I'm wondering maybe also if it was included as a way to keep me relaxed or um, somewhat of an anti-anxiety drug. And then leaving the hospital, I was prescribed oxycodone, um, 70 to 90 milligrams a day. And oxycodone is a an opioid treatment that's used to, re- to relieve severe pain, um, which is, you know, contentious in the way that it was prescribed over the last 10 to 15 years, but um, it's a, you know, fairly serious narcotic. Um, so those were all the medications that I was on in the hospital and the week after. And what I want to call out is I have so much confusion and I had so much, um, I guess, guilt about the way that, you know, everyone seemed to have an opinion about how, how I could have been better in the hospital or how I could have done things differently, uh, in the hospital. And I took for a long time, I, I took a lot of responsibility for that, and I felt ter- terrible guilt for the way that, that people felt about the time in the hospital. You know, my mom mentioned in her interview that it was stressful for her to have so many people around, and um, my ex-boyfriend and, you know, the guy that I had been dating, who I was no longer dating, you know, that layer of the situation that was tense and their individual feelings about having each other there and me allowing that to happen and I for a very long time I beat myself up and felt really like a bad person for the way that people felt about the hospital I guess that they didn't have fun um but in doing this research into what medications I was on, I learned so much about, like, what my actual mind state must have been there. And in addition to being, you know, I'm sure a little bit in shock and, you know, hugely reacting to, you know, fight or flight responses throughout my body and my nervous system and, um, you know, adrenaline, you know, rushing through my, my veins, all of these medications, I'm sure played a huge role in the way that I felt in the hospital, which like I mentioned was euphoric. You know, I was, I was flying high and (laughs) reading through all these medications. I see why, um, you know, like I said, Dilaudid is two to eight times more potent than morphine. Um, it can also cause lightheadedness, drowsiness, anxiety, and depression. Um, clonopin, reading about clonopin can cause visual or auditory hallucinations, um, irrational thoughts that you 
that others have control over one's behavior, vivid nightmares, worrying that other people can read one's thoughts, inability to harness control over uncomfortable thoughts and behaviors, extreme mood swings, nervousness, out-of-character behavior, emotional coldness, unprovoked excitability, unexplained rage and anger, emotional numbness, inability to feel pleasure, suicidal thoughts, um, gabapentin can cause drowsiness, dizziness, headache, uncontrollable shaking, double or blurred vision, unsteadiness, anxiety, memory problems, strains or unusual thoughts. It says gabapentin can also enhance the euphoria caused by an opioid. So gabapentin mixed with an opioid like Dilaudid or oxycodone could actually enhance that feeling. Um, Methocarbamol, um, the muscle relaxant, was... It says, um, causes headaches, dizziness, lightheadedness, drowsiness, sedation, and confusion. And then the one that I wanted to talk about was oxycodone. Um, because I, I've not taken opioids in my life and, and with intention because I've always been, afraid of opioids from seeing friends of mine uh, develop severe addictions uh, knowing um, friends that have passed away um, from severe addictions to opioids and uh, as you'll hear I had enough problems of my own I remember going into the surgeon's office, the surgeon who did, who performed the surgery on my hand in the ER that night. And I remember sitting in his office and sitting so, like, sitting stick upright and just staring. Like, I picked, like, a focal point on the wall and stared at this focal point on the wall. And I, I think my mom was there, but I can't really remember and I remember him coming in the room and tears just streaming down my face like just hot tears ripping down the sides of my face because the pain was so much and he was saying to me I you know I was there to ask him what to do and I thought what he was going to say to do was to take more medication because this was more pain than I had ever felt in my life um and I was sitting in there and he said you know the drugs that I was on he said were really really extreme drugs extreme medications to be taking and, and really addictive medications to be taking. And he could see that I was in a lot of pain. I, I was having trouble talking. I was having trouble um, responding or, put, you know, getting, getting words to come out was hard um, because the pain 
was that uh, all-encompassing from my hand. And he said, I want you to stop taking these medications. And I remember feeling shocked and so terrified. And he, he said, you will be in an incredible amount of pain. And there will be nights when you don't sleep because you're in so much pain. And I remember thinking that it was a comfort in a, in a small way to know that that agony was what he was prescribing because that was what I was in for him, you know if if I felt like he didn't believe me how much pain I was in I I would have fought back I think but he looked at me and he knew that I was in real shocking horrible painful like just I can't even describe it agony and he still said I don't want you to take these medications anymore but he wrote down his cell phone number on a piece of paper um, his name and his cell phone number on a piece of paper and gave it to me and my mom and he said if you are awake in the middle of the night and you think that you just can't do it then give me a call and I'll write you a prescription but if you can do it that's that's what I want you to do so I was terrified and I, I, I did what he said and I took his cell phone number that, on that little piece of paper and I set it on my nightstand. I propped it up on a lamp and the nights that I stayed up in agony because of the pain um, and couldn't think anything else but pain, pain pain, pain. I remember thinking that word over and over and I have such a respect um, for people that have chronic pain and live with chronic pain because it's so hard to think about anything, focus on anything else. When the pain was really bad, what was I like then? Do you remember? <coughs> You would get really quiet and stay in your room at the Airbnb. You didn't want to come out. You just would stay in your bed. And you were angry at me. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. What do you mean angry? That's just what kids do. They get angry at their mother for everything, I think. <laughs> 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 I have pain. This is your fault. Um, <laughs> Cookie does that to me. Yeah, yeah. So, I I just was like, didn't know how to help you. 
I remember describing the pain in my hand to my mom and describing it as, um, I don't know if it was when my blood would flow, um, or if it was the, when my blood would pump to my hand and then the nerves would try to wake up, but it was a, every three seconds succession of feeling like my hand got slammed in a car door and then doused in gasoline and lit on fire. So I think when I was feeling like it was being slammed in a car door, I think it was blood rushing to that, to those fingers. And I think when I felt like it was lit on fire, it was the nerves trying to wake up, but it was that all day and all night. It was the thud of a car door slamming and then the burn of a blue flame engulfing my hand. And it was just that over and over and over. And um, like my mom said, I, I got really quiet. I remember my stepdad coming into my bedroom and telling me that I was scaring my mom and that I should eat something or say something. And I remember looking at him and again, like in the doctor's office, just couldn't get words to come out and tears just streaming down my face. And I couldn't, I don't think I was interested in eating. I wasn't really interested in anything, anything at all. So I know that last section spent a lot of time around um, pain, but I, I wanted to give life and vocalize um, what the experience of pain was like. I know in the other episodes I talked a lot about how I didn't feel any pain that night when I was stabbed um, or when we were fighting. Um, and I was so thankful for that and my body took care of that. Um, but there was an impact and I, you know, this pain that I felt afterward was the reality of the severity of the injuries that I had. Um, it wasn't a painless experience. Um, I also, I wanted to talk about pain because I think, when it comes to women in pain, uh, women in pain are often underestimated and that is, has been socialized. Um, and it's more severe across socioeconomic levels and ethnicities and geographic locations. I think women are often just not believed for how severe their pain is. Um, so anyone that has experienced pain like that, I just wanted to be descriptive about what it was like. It's also pain is always like that is always a singular experience. It's just you. Um, and just that can feel very lonely and isolating. Um, 
and make you feel like no one understands because really truly no one can understand an individual's pain that they're going through physical pain or emotional pain um I also wanted to to tell that story about the doctor because I'm so thankful that he pushed me to do it this way and I say that because I don't think I realized at the time nor did I really care um how addictive the medications that I was on were and how quickly that addiction can take hold there was no part of me that thought two or three weeks on oxycodone could result in a lifelong addiction um but through doing this research and through educating myself I can see that that doctor knew that his push for me to try to do it on my own may have saved me from a lifetime of struggle with addiction. Um, so I thank him for that. It was very, very hard. And also, you know, that the solution is either an incredibly addictive narcotic or Tylenol is also something that I was not aware of. Um, uh, the last thing I wanted to say about the pain was that this was also the first time I practiced something that I started to do in different areas of my life. And I, I hope that this is helpful information and not, um, not something that's going to hinder anyone in their recovery process. But I learned when the physical pain was happening uh, to observe it. And I'll talk about in later episodes what that meant in different areas of my life. But when the pain was really bad and there was nothing to do about it, um, I learned to observe it. And I say that in the sense that like, and I still do it now. If I'm in pain, I'll notice it. And I'll take note of that pain is my body putting together chemistry and sensation to alert me to something. And just the act of making a decision to observe it instead of existing in it, it's not a cure-all, but it did help give some relief uh, when it was really, really bad. Um, And I think you know, that is a very temporary form of what relief that ability gave me. Um, but in the later episodes, I'll talk a little bit more about how I used that uh, in my mental recovery as well. I was in pain for a while, but the severe, severe pain, I think, lasted maybe one or two weeks and like I mentioned I you know I had some friends that fell away but I had some friends that continued to want to show up and pitch in and help out 
were you working at that time? I was freelancing. Um, I think I had some projects here and there, but I wasn't like super busy now, I think. I was going to say, because it's a lot to have a schedule of nights that you're going to be over at a place. And I guess, like, again, you know, I I don't have a complete clear picture of, like, day to day to day what that was like. Um, but it, it did feel like everybody kind of had to pitch in a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I didn't, I wouldn't have called it pitching in, because um, I think ultimately it was just about wanting to be there for you. Um, it wasn't, didn't feel like a chore at any point. Like, oh, someone's going to take the next shift. Like, it was never that. <laughs> um, it was just about being sensitive to. Do you need people right now? Do you need some alone time? Do you like, where where are you at personally, and not wanting to overwhelm you but not also like not wanting to just leave you alone. Um, so just kind of trying to find the balance. I think everyone was individually probably trying to figure out what that needs to look like. Um, so. And how did I seem, did I seem like emotional things were starting to bubble up or did I seem the same? I think it started to feel A little sadder. Mm. I don't know. I don't know why I'm why why that's the word that came to mind, but I think it just started to feel like um, the 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 whole like adrenaline of it all, and the whole um, you know all these people and all these voices and all these things going on and whatever was kind of fading to a degree you know andrew was one friend specifically that was over uh, almost every single day um that i could have guests uh you know on days that i was able to have guests and he was making food and and bringing wine and chatting with my parents and sitting on the couch and and present and you know I, I I you know was smoking cigarettes without abandon at that point I quit cigarettes maybe 10 or 15 years ago but it, you know after this happened I it was a free-for-all I'm smoking all the cigarettes I could get my hands on so he was sitting outside on the balcony with me smoking cigarettes and talking through all of it and um, just, you know, was someone that really stayed present after the hospital, which I so appreciated. So my mom and I and my stepdad started looking for apartments for me. And my mom and I would look all day, we, you know, we we were looking for um, someone to to get to be my therapist, um, and we were looking for a physical therapist. And we were making appointments, and we were uh, looking at apartments around the city. And 
we would go to these appointments and I was still in a full length arm cast and had bruises and cuts on my face and uh, I had two little baby bangs sticking straight up in the front uh, because my hair when he um, stabbed my head had been cut so I had these two you know kind of gnarly bangs sticking up so any appointment we went to anyone would ask you know everyone we encountered would ask what happened and I every single time would launch into the whole story I remember I, I just anybody who would listen I would tell um and we we couldn't really find anything because everywhere we looked in Santa Monica it's not a it's not a city with a lot of you know really tall security gated buildings a lot of a lot of the places are really residential and small older buildings and everywhere we looked we could find something wrong um, or something unsafe with the building so it was it was definitely a challenge so message that I have for any parents um, I wouldn't rent a first floor apartment right like and, we, we yeah that's you know not renting a first floor apartment um, look like, at the crime rates look at the crime rates in your area that you're looking because I didn't know I never did that in my life until now but you can you can look on some websites have it and you can see well why would I move into that neighborhood right like I mentioned at this time my mom and I were looking for therapy and ongoing mental and physical care and we didn't really know where to start so we called the social worker from the ER and asked her if she had any recommendations for therapy or um, you know treatment ongoing for my emotional care and my physical care and we were recommended to um, find a physical therapist and we did and I started going to physical therapy twice a week for my hand and for my arms and um, we were recommended by the social worker to the rape treatment center in Santa Monica and they were generous and kind enough to donate um, free therapy sessions to me um, uh, cognitive therapy with one of their therapists which was wonderful and incredible um, and I'm so thankful for that organization uh, I also from some female friends who were also survivors um, was recommended to EMDR therapy so my mom and I looked into that and what EMDR is is it's supposed to be a therapy that it's cognitive therapy to my understanding that is paired with um, like vibrations that happen that stimulate both sides of your nervous system and help to balance rebalance your nervous system specific to trauma survivors and I apologize if I described that 
poorly, but it's it's recommended for survivors of um, sexual or violent uh, trauma or significant trauma. So we found an EMDR therapist, and I started going to therapy once a week at the Rape Treatment Center and once a week with my EMDR therapist. Um, and we looked into an outpatient uh it was like an eight hour a day out outpatient treatment um for severe trauma but a lot of the places that we went to were astronomically expensive like five thousand dollars a week or something like that and um a lot of them were also addiction centers I remember and I went, I, we went to one that in it, I just remember it smelled like, like every room you went to smelled like it had been cloaked in cigarette smoke for decades. Um, and it, it just, and this isn't specific to addiction survivors or trauma survivors, but this place, this specific place that we went to just did not feel like a place to go to recover. Um, but, you know, but at this point, I was able to be mobile, I was able to communicate, and we were on track with at least looking for a new place to live, um, seeking out treatment, finding it, and starting to really kind of lay the groundwork for what the future would hold. I also, if you remember from the last episode, the, I played a little bit of the body cam footage from the officer, the first officer on the scene, and you can hear the firefighters and, uh, and the police discussing, you know, taking care of me and transporting me to the hospital, and there was one firefighter in particular that I really wanted to um, thank for his treatment of me and how thoughtful he was um, after the experience that I had that night about making me feel comfortable. So around this time, my mom and I were able to go to the fire station in Santa Monica and thank him. And we brought something, we brought some kind of food. And I remember that because when we got to the fire station, it was clear that there's no shortage of food, <laughs> homemade food at the fire station. <laughs> they had cookies. They had um, like all just all of these like cute homemade brownies and things that were clearly brought to them by the community. And I was able to to meet Bryce um, in a normal way, uh, and my mom was able to meet him as well and thank him and. Um, I also thought, you know, in that job, that must be such a difficult job. And you may not always get to see that someone, get to see someone on the other side of it, if that makes sense, and and see how you helped them. Um, so we were able to do that and, and hug him and say thank you and... Um, that was just really meaningful for me uh, to get to do. 
it was around this time that I noticed, I guess I didn't notice at the time, but looking back, um, can see that uh, rage was really starting to bubble up to the surface for me. And I, I've always been told that I'm a scary person when I'm angry. Uh, people have told me that my eyes change and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I box now. Um, I'm a boxer and my, my boxing coach, when my, when he pisses me off, my eyes will change and he'll laugh. But I've heard, you know, I've had boyfriends in the past and my mom in the past have told me that I have this, this change in my eyes that happens when I'm angry. But this, this feeling and, and this explosivity that started happening after the hospital, um, was new to me. It was, it was like a, an unbridled rage that had no limits, um, that it just had no bounds. Um, I remember the first, the first thing that I remember was I was driving and I, I still had my whole arm cast and I was still very hurt. Um, but my mom was in the front seat, my stepdad was in the back seat and I, I got angry about something and I screamed like a blood curdling scream and was so it, of rage and just started screaming like, what the fuck, fuck, like screaming like that, banging against the windows, like when, and I, I remember that, that feeling, um, I can remember exactly what it felt and it, it, you know, I, it just felt bottomless and I remember opening my eyes and looking at my mom and she looked so scared and frightened and, um, disappointed and worried, um, and, you know, that, that rage was coming up again and again and again, and it, it wouldn't take a lot to push me to that place of rage, um, and when it happened, it was like, it was like the, the lever or the door that keeps rage and, and all of these emotions, you know, terror, um, all, you know, all of the, our strongest emotions that there's some sort of cap on them in normal waking life. And the way that I felt rage and fear at this time was like there wasn't a limit. Um, so that, that started happening more and more. And that, that was the first clue 
that I had into or the first um, like steps I guess that I had into what would become my experience with PTSD um, in the last episode I talked a little bit about what was happening between me and my ex-boyfriend at that time and the from going from the hospital into the Airbnb you know I said in the last episode when I woke up from surgery I could feel that something about him was off um and that he seemed emotionally distant he seemed a little bit checked out and he was there in the hospital I remember he was there every single day he was by my side every single day and every single night I remember him uh going home to shower and I remember panicking because I had I was so afraid of being alone you know of him not being there and but there was this feeling there was an undercurrent that that he was distant and I attributed that to the tensions that were going on in the hospital and also that it was just a really overwhelming situation and hard a hard one to know how to navigate um, for anyone involved but once we moved into the Airbnb I it started to become I guess a little more clear that he was starting to distance himself more and more and that just meant you know a couple days would go by where we wouldn't see him or he'd have things going on and couldn't stop by um I found out much later there were he there were some things that he was telling my parents that he was taking care of that they then would have to you know they would then go to take care of it and things wouldn't have gotten done um so they were kind of getting you know they were getting frustrated and losing trust with him I think then uh and he 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 more than than I was really acting like or trying to act like everything was normal and there was nothing scary going on um I remember it was before I I went off the medications I believe it was before the pain started so it was I think a week after the attack and it was a Thursday or Friday night and he we we had just gotten settled into the Airbnb we had tried staying in my old apartment and he was there for that and he I couldn't get a hold of him for a couple days and then he stopped by and and he asked that I come downstairs to talk to him in his car and and I was talking to him in his car and he said that he had to leave 
uh, and that he had plans that Friday night and that Saturday night. And, I, you know, this was my whole life consumed. So I remember just feeling strange that he had plans. And I asked him what plans. And he said that some of his guy friends had set up um, a karaoke night for him and had bought him tickets to the Lakers game the following night, uh, that Saturday, because he'd had a really tough week, he said. And I, I just remember, and maybe this is an unfair reaction because I'm sure he did have a tough week. Um, we all did, but I just remember being outraged and so confused um, because at that point I didn't have a place to live. I, I was a week out from this thing happening. You know, I was very, very lucky in having my family out here and um, in us having a very nice place to stay. But I was, you know, it wasn't like after a week, everything, for me at least, went back to normal. Um, but we we got into an argument, and I, I was really upset and just confused why why he why he thought he needed to check out and how how he could go to karaoke and how he could go to a Lakers game and even have fun um because I just kept thinking if the tables were turned I I I just would be too distracted to do something, you know, that would, that would completely take me out of everything that was happening. Um, but it was, it was things like that, things that started to happen. And then more and more days would pass where we wouldn't hear from him or he would be busy or, um, he wouldn't be able to stop by the, the Airbnb. And I started to feel, uh, his presence fade uh, more than I had ever felt in my life before. So the last thing I want to do is introduce you to my friend Meg, and you'll hear a lot more from her in the next episode, um, but I want you to get to meet her uh, in this episode. So I'm going to test holding it. <coughs> nice. Holding it in between us, you say a couple words now. Okay. Um, my name's Meg, and I feel like I'm Jenna Bark. <laughs> I'm Meg, and we've been friends for, I think, about eight years now. <laughs> oh, no, this is going to be so bad. <laughs> Don't look at me, okay? Okay. <laughs> Use it and introduce yourself. What do you want me to say? I'm Meg, and I'm your friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. My name. I'm Meg. I 
I've been your friend for so many years. Um, My likes, interests, and hobbies are... Small things and fart jokes. (laughs) Okay, I can do this. Okay. I'm Meg, and we've been friends for, I think, about eight years now. So that's my friend Meg. Um, She's going to play, like I said, a more significant role in the next few episodes of this series that um the next two part um will dive more deeply into PTSD I talked about rage in this episode and in those episodes um that are coming up next uh I want to really explore how PTSD came to life for me um, and that's mostly the reason why I've been providing this framework of what was happening between me and my ex at the time, um, which I've gone back and forth on including. Um, but when it comes to these these coming episodes is going to make a lot more sense um, why that's there. And... I had a dis- I had originally planned um, for this to be the first part of that episode, but like I said at the beginning, it just there was too much that I was trying to pack in, um, and I wanted to give this episode its own space because I think it's kind of the it's just one click down into things, kind of becoming what they were going to be as far as stepping into a new reality and what that felt like um, and what part pain played in that, what part caretaking played in that and what part my my mental state um, played in that. Um, so thank you for tuning in as always um, and I really hope you tune in next week. I'm going to be sharing a little bit more. Um, I'm going to be sharing photos, but uh, in the coming weeks, I'm going to be sharing a lot more in the way of resources, um, just for anyone who is struggling with trauma recovery or PTSD, um, things that I found helpful along the way that I hope um, you or you know anyone who's listening uh, will potentially find helpful as well. Um, so thank you.